The teaching for this morning comes from Romans 7, 1 through 13. This is God's word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For if a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is the word of the Lord. If you uh, have your worship folder, keep it open there to uh, Romans chapter 7, or if you have a Bible... Uh, keep it handy as we, we look at this passage together this morning. We're in the midst of a series in the book of Romans. And uh, if uh, it's your first time with us this, uh, this year and into next, we're uh, looking at the book of Genesis and the book of Romans at the same time, taking uh, each book a chunk at a time. Uh, and you might wonder, why, why, why are you doing that? <laughs> Perhaps more than any other book, two books in the Bible, those two books paint for us this beautiful, big picture that the whole, the story of the whole Bible is telling. And so we're looking at these two books to help us get a a rich, deep, and uh, hopefully meaningful uh, grasp on who God is and what he's done in Jesus. And so we come to Romans chapter 7 this week, and just to remind you, this this is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote uh, in about 56 AD to this church in Rome. And he had not been there, and he had not met these Christians as of writing this letter. And he writes them uh, this rather lengthy letter. It's, it's perhaps one of the most substantial, well-known of Paul's letter, letters. But it has a very simple, basic theme. Paul is writing to us about God's good news for the whole world. At the heart of this letter, that's what Paul is telling us, is God has good news for the whole world. And, and in this section of Romans, uh, we've been looking at a number of questions that Paul is addressing. 
In Romans 1 through 5, uh, the first few chapters, he laid out the bad news. And in chapter 4, he begins to lay out the good news. And at the end of chapter 5, he says something that uh, prompts him to address a number of complicated questions that are coming up out of uh, the the congregations that he's writing to as they reflect on his gospel. And he says at the end of chapter 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that, that one sentence leads him to ask the question, should we then go on sinning that grace may abound? And his answer to that is by no means. Absolutely not. And we looked in chapter 6, we, we learned why he responds so strongly to that. And the answer is, he says, if you're a Christian, you have died to sin. That is fundamental to who you are. Sin as a power has been broken. You are a fundamentally different person when you come to trust in Jesus. And so in Romans chapter 7, as we begin, he, uh, he picks up on uh, chapter 6, verse 14. And at the very end of that verse, he says, you are no longer under law, but under grace. And what does Paul mean when he says that? Here in uh, this first 13 verses, we, we get the first part of his answer. And I, I just want you to notice uh, a good... Uh, practice when you're reading the Bible, one of the easiest ways to figure out what is a passage talking about is just to look for repeated words or similar ideas. And when we apply that to this passage, we would notice that the word law occurs 14 times in these 13 verses. The word commandment occurs six times and the phrase written code, which is just another way of saying the law or, or commandment, occurs one time. So here we have over 20 occurrences of this idea in 13 verses. That ought to tell us, okay, this passage, Paul is talking about the law. And in, even though Paul uses that term in a number of different ways, for simplicity's sake, I want you to think in terms of Uh, the law of Moses, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. This is the law that God gave Moses. And here Paul is working out what is the relationship between the law of God and this superabounding grace that is found in Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to get us to understand. He's working out what the role of God's law is in the life of faith. And so I just want to look at two points with you this morning. Two assertions that he makes from this passage. One, to be a Christian means you are free from the law. That's the first point. Freedom from the law. And at the very same time, though, Paul also says it is true for a Christian that the law is good. And even for a non-Christian, Paul is saying that God's law in and of itself is good and holy and righteous. So first, let's look at when Paul is making this claim 
that we are free from the law in verses 1 through 6. Why is that so important? Well, first of all, think of it like this. He's, in these first six verses, he really has a pastoral point he's making. He's writing to people who know the law, as he says there in verse 1. And if we were to dig in that a little bit, think of it, he's writing to people who think that Christianity is really earning God's favor. That if we were just do what God says, we would be fine. And Paul is saying, that's not at all the case. Now, why, why is this idea of freedom from the law so important? And I want you to, at the very beginning to understand the answer to that begins with, because when a person trusts in Jesus, everything about that person's life changes. Absolutely everything. And we saw this already, as I mentioned earlier, Paul's already said, a Christian is someone who's died to sin. Chapter 6, verse 2. But then, notice here in in chapter 7, verse 4, a Christian is someone who's died to the law. Look here in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Jesus, through the body of Christ. This is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. See, he is working out what the death and resurrection means when it comes to how we relate to God. Now, what does he mean by this phrase in verse 4 that you've died to the law? Uh, If you're an underliner or a note taker, I want you to pay attention to this because what he means by this phrase, died to the law, is... I'll just be honest with you. It is a difficult phrase to really understand what he's trying to communicate. If you look in verse 4, again, he says, first of all, you've died to the law. Verse 6, look down in verse 6. Then he says, we are released from the law. And then later on in verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So right at, right at the outset, what I want you to hear When Paul says you've died to something, you've died to the law, what he means is you've been set free. You've been set free from that which held you captive. Now, in verses 2 and 3, Paul gives us an illustration to help us understand this. And he uses the metaphor of marriage. Now that ought to tell you something. If you're going to understand right away, what does it mean to have died to the law What it means is a relationship has changed. Let's look at this. Look in verse 2 and 3. He says, For a married woman who is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Here is the point that he's trying to make in those two verses. He's saying that the death of of, of one of the spouse, either the husband or wife, It releases the other spouse from being bound to that spouse. And they are now free to marry another. Here's the basic principle that he's saying. He's saying that a death sets free from the law. A death sets free from the law. And he uses this this metaphor, this illustration, to help us understand what happens 
in the death and resurrection of Jesus. What he's saying here is that previously we were married to the law of God. But through Jesus Christ, we are set free to marry another. Which is precisely what he says there in verse 4. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him, that is Jesus, who was raised from the dead. Now, why is this so important? Well, first of all, I think it's kind of obvious. Law is impersonal. Or at least it feels that way. It feels like very black and white. Very clinical and sterile. And what Paul wants you to understand is Christianity is not like that. Christianity is about a life-giving, vibrant relationship with the living God. Why is this so important? First of all, notice in verse 5, the reason it's so important that you've died to the law is that to be married to the law is a terrible marriage. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And in fact, if you look down to verse 10, notice what Paul says. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Paul is thinking back in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, where God says, if you do this, you will live. Now, Paul has discovered something. This law of God that God said, if you do this, you will live, in fact has led to my death. What does this tell us about this whole idea of marriage to the law? It was a lifeless marriage. It was a miserable marriage. It was a marriage that grated against all of his desires and sensibilities and provoked all of those desires in his life that don't lead to life, but in fact lead to his own undoing. And to the hurt and harm of, of other people. It was a marriage that is destined to fail. Now, let me, let me think about this with you for a moment. When he says here in verse 5 that um, our sinful desires or passions were aroused by the law or provoked by the law. Think of it like this. Uh, particularly think back when you were a child. And if you're here today and, and you fit that category of child, you ever gone into a store and you see the sign that says, do not touch? That's a law. What is the first thing you want to do when you see the do not touch sign? I'm so glad you're chuckling. You want to touch it. It provokes in you this sort of inexplicable desire that perhaps you didn't notice before to break that law and to touch that thing. That's what it's like to be married to the law. It doesn't cause those desires in you, but it is the occasion that pulls those desires up to the surface. Do you see that? That's what Paul is saying. It is... See, to be married to the law, what it means is all you ever see 
is all those things in your life that you cannot reverse. You cannot escape. They are part of who you are at the core of your being. The law of God points out it is the do not touch sign in every part of your life. And it is a miserable marriage. Now in contrast, look in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. What's the result of having died to this unhealthy, miserable, doomed to failure marriage? The result is not to go do whatever you want. See, to die to the law doesn't mean I get to touch what I really want to touch. What it means is you are now set free to serve. Look what he says. Verse 4. He says, you die to the law to belong to another in order that we might bear fruit to God. Verse 6. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. See, marriage to Jesus, it necessarily leads to a new life. And we're going to see this when we come to Romans chapter 8. Paul actually uses language, Christ died in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, to be married to Jesus means there are now available to you the necessary resources to live a whole new life. Now just step back for a moment and pause. Think about what are the best marriages that you've ever seen? The way I would answer that question The best marriages I have ever seen are the marriages in which one of the spouses enables the other spouse to become more than they could have ever been on their own. Now, if if you're here, whether you're married or not, I hope you're starting to realize that we didn't come up with the idea of marriage. Marriage is just, it's not just a social institution. God owns the, the corner of the market on marriage. And marriage is his metaphor for helping you understand, whether you're married or not, what it means to be in relationship with him. You see, to be married to Jesus means you are now married to a spouse whose entire existence is lived to make you become more than you could ever be on your own. No law can do that. Only the spouse to which you are married can do that. Now, let me apply this for a moment to the marriages. What should you be doing if you're married? What is your calling in your marriage? Your calling in your marriage is very simple. Your job is to help your spouse become more then he or she could become on his or her own. That's your job. That is your calling. So here's a question for later today. 
Ask your spouse, what kind of person would you like to become and why? What are the ways that you would like to change and you find it so hard to change? How can I help you become the person that God has created you to be? Let's keep moving. Here's what I want you to hear as we transition from this first point, freedom of the law. Here's what the gospel tells you. You are no longer held captive to a horrible spouse. What it tells you is you are now safe in the embrace of another. That is Jesus. Now here's the big question though. If you really do take into the middle of your life that in Jesus you are set free from the law, there is a grave mistake. You could end up thinking that the law is of no value at all. In fact, Paul says in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he says, by no means. Now, why does he say that? Because the real issue in this second point about the goodness of the law is that the problem is not the law of God, but the sin resident in your heart and my heart. Paul, later in Romans 8 too, he uses the language of the law is weakened by sinful flesh. Or another way to think about it, the law is good and holy and righteous, but it's limited. Why is it limited? It's not limited in revealing to us God's character and what it means to live a truly human life. It's limited because it cannot change your heart. And if you live your life bound to the law of God as if you could somehow become the person God created you to be, you will never, ever change. But even though the law of God is limited, it is not limited in its accuracy to diagnose sin. Which is precisely what Paul says here in verse 7. Notice what he says. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin is. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now I want you to think about this. This is the Apostle Paul. And basically what he's saying is, I did not understand what God's law really means. Now that's a profound thing for Paul to say. Because if you think about his background, Paul tells us before he became a Christian that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is a guy who knew the law of God better than you and I will probably ever know it. And here, amazingly, he says these words, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. See, what Paul is telling us here is that he was once alive, but when he understood God's law, all of a sudden he realized the depth and extent of sin in his life. And he realized that he was not alive. But he was in fact dead in his sin. 
And I think it's particularly striking that he picks the you shall not covet. Because of all of the Ten Commandments, in many ways it's that commandment that inescapably teaches the law of God is not primarily about your outward behavior. It's about your heart. It's about those things in your life that you think you must have to be fully human. To know you're okay. What I want you to see here is essentially Paul began to realize he couldn't out-obey his heart. Think about that. Paul realized he could not out-obey his heart. Whatever he discovered in his heart, he realized from God's law, he couldn't over-obey it. He couldn't fix that. Now, if it is true that in Christ you are set free from the law, as he says here, and yet the law is good, in other words, it's necessary. It's how you know what is It's the diagnosis. How do you hold these two things together? How do you be free from it and yet see it as a good thing? Well, first, let me just say, as as I I said in the beginning, Christianity is first and foremost about a life-giving, life-changing relationship. This is a world away from cold, calculating religion of rules. It is a marriage. It's not a job interview. It's not a performance review. Christianity is not God looking at you according to a profit and loss sheet. It is a life-giving relationship. That's the first thing. And secondly, God's law can't change you. That's verses 1 through 6. But then verses 7 through 13 teach us that it is instrumental in the work that God wants to do in your life. It can't change you, but it is fundamentally instrumental in your life for what God wants to do in your life. Another way to think about it is, as I've said, it's a diagnostic tool. It cuts you open. It reveals what's already there. But at the very same time, it's directional. It shows you what does it look like to live a truly human life. What does God love? So think of it this way. How is it instrumental in your life? It reveals to you what or who you love, but also how you love. Now I want you to think about this in terms of Jesus for a moment. Jesus... In Matthew chapter 5, he says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then Paul, in chapter 13 of this same letter, he says, love is the fulfilling of the law. And he says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And Jesus, in John chapter 15, says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, I want you to hear this. Remember how I said earlier, Paul thought of the law as this thing that would give life because God actually said, if you do this, 
you will live. But do you know what he said to Jesus, as it were? What God the Father said to God the Son is, if you do this, you will die. You see, the very thing that Paul thought would promise life actually led to death. Jesus has experienced that death. Not because he didn't get it right, but precisely because he did get it right. So that when you and I read in the scriptures, if you do this, you will live, it doesn't spell your death. But in the gift of the Spirit, which what I want you to hear when you hear in the new way of the Spirit is Jesus pouring out his life into your life so that you might be able to love and to live as he did. Now think about this, this experience that Paul has gone through as we read here in uh, verses 7 to 13. It's an experience that we have to go through again and again of discovering how it is that our hearts are skewed. How we need to be diagnosed over and over and over. But this is what I want you to hear me say. If you find yourself waking up in the morning thinking, oh man, I totally screwed up yesterday. And I, I believe that, I, that in, in Jesus and that I, I should um, want to, to do better. And my job today is to somehow shrink the gap between how I'm doing and what I believe. I just think that's a total lie. That is not what Christianity says. Christianity does not look at you and say, all right, it's your job to look at your failures and somehow make up the gap between what you say you believe and actually how you live. What I want you to think of is much more this idea of a marriage that you are now safe in the embrace of another. That you are now safe in the embrace of Jesus who is the only good spouse. Who is the only spouse who would give his life in order that you would have life. So when you find yourself face to face like Paul did in this passage that he really is a coveter that we really are adulterers, that we really are idolaters, that we really are murderers, that we really are liars. What do you do with that? You see, the good news of the gospel says you are now married to a spouse who will be utterly faithful to you. So run to him. Ask him for help. Ask him to pour out his spirit into your heart and your life and to enable you to become more than you could ever be on your own. You are set free from the law of God. And yet it is good in the hands of Jesus for those he's married to. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage and it's a difficult one. Uh, through your servant, Paul, you're helping us to understand some difficult things. You're helping us to understand the, the riches of grace and 
how it pushes all kinds of buttons and ways in which we are so prone to misconstrue the good news about Jesus. And so we ask that you would help us by your spirit to understand, uh, to, to listen, and to live these, goods word, these good words. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.